Um, we are looking at a new series um, starting this morning on the book of Ephesians. Ephesians was Calvin's favorite letter. Coleridge said it's the divinest composition of man. And particularly this first chapter where I'm speaking from this morning um, is held to be one of the most beautiful passages in scripture. Yet I'm going to hazard a guess that for a lot of us here, it takes us back to this stuck place because it's got quite a few of those words in it. You know, those kind of words where familiarity hasn't necessarily bred contempt, but it might have bred a lot of sterility about these epoch-changing, supposedly awe-inspiring, knock-our-socks-off verses that are supposed to lead us to worship, that kind of lead us to a bit of meh. And as I said, it's one of the things that I love doing the most is demystifying these things, and so I really hope that we can do a bit of that this morning. I know a decent amount about this stuck place, because as I said, I had the upbringing that I had. Um, and I spent most of my teens and a decent chunk of my 20s trying to escape this stuck place by abjectly and passionately rejecting all things Christianity. And I remember the moment that I realized I was stuck again. The summer before this, I had set off on a uh, round-the-world backpacking adventure with my boyfriend. And um, it was very exciting. And we had, our second stop on this trip was New York. And it all went tits up quite quickly. Um, it had been going all right for a bit. My sister was living there, and we were crushing in her apartment. And she was doing really well as a model. So it was all this glamour, all of these parties that we somehow kind of snuck into. Um, but at one of these parties, my boyfriend collapsed and was rushed into hospital and had what at that moment looked like a, a rupture in his duodenum. On September the 10th, 2001, in the evening, his doctor called us and said, we found cancer. On September the 11th, 2001, we were downtown on our way to um, the doctor when what everyone knows happened. happened. Um, we were on the very first flight out of there, five days later, when they reopened the airports. And I had found myself um, back home without a plan, without a job, while he was um, at about a year of treatment. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I took a job in a um, car dealership, on the front desk of a car dealership, which was a special kind of sales force, testosterone-driven hell. Um, <laughs> oh, it was not a good time. Um, but this particular night, when I realized I was stuck again, I, had, I, had, I can't even remember what happened that day. I know I was alone in the house. And um, I found myself kind of desperate, kind of desperate for a knowledge of God, for this sense of, are you real? And I was yelling. I want you to imagine that I'm yelling this like at a window with drama, with like thunder and lightning. But remember, I'm British and quite repressed. So I was probably whimpering it into a pillow. I just was, be real, be real. If you're real, I'll do anything. Just be real. Please be real. Which I, I wonder if is a, a thing that a few of us, a, a moment that a few of us can relate to. Of just that need to have a belief that it was going to be okay. Because it didn't feel like it was going to be okay. And what happened next, I'm going to tell you about in a moment. But first, let's look at the passage. There's a fair bit of controversy over the authorship and origins of the letter to the Ephesians. Um, Ephesus was a, the largest city in um, the region of Asia, Asia Minor. It was wealthy. It was important because of trade routes. It was the headquarters of a pagan cult. 
Paul had spent two years, probably a decade earlier here, establishing the church which had spread out from this region. Technically, no one knows whether it was written to Ephesus or to, as more of a general letter to everyone. And technically, there's a lot of controversy over Paul wrote it or someone else who knew Paul's theology and was kind of copying his style wrote it. To our purposes, it doesn't really matter. I just had to tell you that I knew all that stuff about it. <laughs> it's a letter. The fact that it's a letter is important because um, they followed a set format. And these letters were passed around, and they were what was used in gatherings of the new Christians. Because remember, they didn't have a Bible. The New Testament didn't exist. They had these letters and um, things that the apostles had written. This is where they got all of their basis for early belief and practice. Which, if you think about it, makes it even more amazing that this book says what it says about saints and the body of Christ, and us all having a part of that. Because no one had any training, and they didn't have a Bible. But that would be jumping ahead. Anyway. Uh... They had a set format, and the start of these letters were always supposed to lead to worship. The opening of this letter, from where I'm, I'm going to read in a minute, is called a, dexo- a doxology, which means a piece of liturgy composed directly to inspire worship. In fact, verses 3 to 14 in the Greek are just one long exuberant sentence with no punctuation whatsoever. So let's do it, finally. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So one long sentence, a magnificent and complicated, marvelously concise yet comprehensive summary, a constellation of the main ideas of our theology. It's likened to the overture of an opera, a snowball gathering momentum, a kaleidoscope of dazzling color of what it is to believe, purposely entirely to generate worship in its listeners. 
And it would have done that to its original um, audience, fresh, new, enthusiastic Christians. But all those words that have fused their pathways in our neurologies via childhoods of confusing sermons or maybe unexplained doctrines and maybe religion, the tribal mentalities of religion. What can we do with an election doctrine that implies some of us are chosen and others of us are not? And does the mysteries of his will mean that sometimes he lets bad things happen to us in order to teach us important lessons? When it comes to the rock and the hard place and the stuckness that I was talking about before, I think it's these unresolved questions that can keep us there. And so, as much as it's uncomfortable to engage with these theological ickeries, I um, very much encourage you to do so. I'm going to run through the worst offenders now. Election has nothing to do with the idea that God chooses some and ignores others. It's not some weird, unnecessary concept of blinding some people's eyes to the truth and opening others. None of the first century Christians would have heard it this way because once the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles that Ed spoke about last week, God has shown the early church that this is now for everyone, once and for all. As Peter says, God has no favorites and this isn't going to change. Election takes place in Christ. The process of election has already been completed in him, so anyone who chooses Jesus receives that election the moment they do. There aren't people who are left out of this. That's not how it works. Jesus came for all of us. The reason this is so important to understand, personally, is because it can feel like a huge burden if we think it's all on us, if our side of the bargain is that we have to go and do something with it. Whereas if we understand that we're all in the same boat, every single human being, that what has happened to us is final, we can relax in the knowledge that we're his. And with regards to the understanding of anyone who doesn't believe, who hasn't heard this message, the motivation to preach Jesus from the very start has always been that people would experience eternal life, but that eternal life starts here and now. This isn't about heaven, this is about knowing him now. One little word, so much implication. What about in Christ then? It's a bit Handmaid's Tale, isn't it? Under his eye. Or it's basically an email salutation. Is it just pastors who get this one? Do you ever get that? Yours in Christ? In his blood? Ed got one last year that said, in his grip. It's visceral, isn't it? I've also had one that was yours because we are his. No, 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 no. But what does it mean? Paul uses the phrase in Christ 164 times in his 13 letters. And it's a really good example of how our foreign ears completely miss the point. To a Jewish understanding, there were several layers of meaning to this. A king was said to represent his people. So think King David and Israel. Israel is said to be in David. Jesus has won the decisive victory over the oldest and darkest enemy of all, and we are in him, in the king, in Christ, so we have won it too. This is the message that Paul's trying to get across. It also has a local sense, a sense of residence, living in him, where he gives us what we need and helps us to live like him. So it's a very, um, sorry, a, a 
total end to the very idea that we need to earn our own status. Being in Christ is the end to all moral and religious requirement. The logical conclusion of this sort of local sense is where Paul goes later to in the letter with his imagery about the body and the church. Maybe, my feminist brothers and sisters, sonship caused your ears to prick up, not daughtership. Definitely sonship, actually. Because in these days, so only sons would inherit anything at all, and that's the whole point. We're all now included in the sonship. It's for everyone. He treats you like his heir, and it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, the oldest or the squiggling runt. You get it all. You can't be sacked. You can't be made redundant. You're his child. He'll never let anyone snatch you from his arms. It doesn't ma matter what you do, what choices you make. He'll never leave you, and he doesn't want to. You're guaranteed, so you need never doubt about inclusion or worry ever, ever again that you're his. And again, it takes the onus off us, sonship, because it's talking about being an heir, and an heir to any throne hasn't done anything to earn it. All an heir has done is been born. It's purely down to having a king or queen as a parent. Redemption, maybe less problematic per se, but still worth understanding because I think there's a bit of depth that we don't see at first sight. The original meaning of redemption is the purchase of freedom for slaves, which could only be bought by a blood relative. The way that it's written about in verses 7 to 10 it reveals that underneath it is the ancient story of the Passover, where the Israelites um, were rescued from the angel of death in Egypt by painting lamb's blood on their door frames. It said that in that day, God went to Egypt and bought himself the people that had been enslaved there. And now this is being told as fulfillment to that old story, the true redemption that has occurred on the cross. Redemption is the rescue of everything, the end of separation for everyone, the real deliverance from the real slave master. It's what Jesus has done. And it's what he does in every detail of our lives. Which brings us seamlessly to predestination then, perhaps the trickiest of all. Verse 11. Predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the will of his purpose. Uh, the purpose of his will, even. It's at once the most splendid of doctrines and the most complicated. Mind-bending and soothing and impossible and life-changing. And it's got tension right at its very heart. Are we free to run our own destiny? Or is there a plan? The Bible says yes. 100% yes. Yes, we're free. And yes, there's a plan that we cannot spoil when we're in Christ. <clears throat> there is tension when it comes to the idea of God having a plan and God getting his way and us following his will, and there being a path that we're trying to follow. There is tension when we pray, when we ask him to do the things that we know he loves to do, like heal people, and bless people, and reveal himself to people. There is tension, because we have access, we have sonship, we have this redemption, and it's for now. 
but it's also not yet. This world is full of brokenness. The second law of thermodynamics states that everything in this world is in a process of decay and disintegration, and, and, disintegration, and that we're falling apart and high. I'm turning 40 next year, I'm very familiar with this. God's predestined plan is the redemption of the world through the church, the renewal of all things. This is and always will be the plan to bring everything into him. But the specifics of the plan are in constant flux because we are free and the world is broken. What we must never do is try to turn this into maxims. Everything happens for a reason. Everything does not happen for a reason. It is unthinkable to apply that logic to some of the things that humans have endured. Everything happens for a reason might be my worst expression ever, right behind yummy mummy. <laughs> what about, oh, the Lord works in mysterious ways. He doesn't. He really doesn't. The New Testament makes it clear that God only wants good things for his children. He does not cause pain or strife or rear-ending or acne or rain on wedding days the same way that he does not cause cancer or death. He's not interested in giving us crap to teach us a lesson for the simple fact that the whole story of the New Testament is of him doing everything himself to take the crap away. He doesn't cause bad things to happen to us, but he will absolutely use anything that this broken world hurls at us to shape us and mold us and show us more of him. He will use anything to continue his predestined plans for good. And this is the beauty of a God who is active and loving. The plan stays the same. The execution of the plan is always changing. He's always working out how he can put the plan into action since things have changed. Everything is working together according to his plan to bring all things on heaven, on earth, to him. Depending on how long you've been here, you may have heard Ed and I whinge on about our visa um, saga. It's a saga. Um, the, in order to come here, when we first sort of felt like this is what God was telling us to do, everything just happened. It was like we raised the money without much difficulty. We had all of the, like, you know, we're praying for, like, God, we feel like this is what you're saying. Would you speak to us? We had all of those things where, like, you know, there's really good ones where, like, three people have the same prophetic word for you on the same day. Someone else has a dream about us telling her we were moving here to doing this and know nothing about it. It was so miraculous and clear that we were just charging ahead with the knowledge that we were working in his plans. And then we applied for our visa, and we got to the deadline of when the visa should, should have come, and then it didn't come, and it didn't come, and it didn't come. And in the end, we were waiting for about 16 months. And in that time, Ed had been phased out of his job. Uh, we'd to move out of our house. And the, Susie and Alice, who were coming with us, too, were stretched in ways that, to the absolute limit. It was a miserable time. And the day that I broke, the day that I actually broke, sobbing, crying, I am done, I am done. I don't even know if I believe anymore, I'm done. That kind of level of just done. Got the visa that day. <laughs> Was that his will? That I reach breaking point? That we go through all of that? That we put our kids through all of that? Of course it wasn't. 
Could he have done what he just did very recently when we needed an extension and it was looking pretty bad and it was all a bit scary and it was, our lawyer said, you probably won't get it quickly, it's going to take a while. But we had loads of people praying and done, just done, in less time than it should have done. Why doesn't that always happen? Don't know. What I do know is that we learn an incredible amount about patience, about each other, about our partnership, <laughs> about our faith, and our belief that he is good. The annoying thing about this adult life is it does seem that we have to go through these things to know that they're true. We can't just read about them. The unbelievably good news is right there in verse 10. Um, it's in the Greek word um, for sum up, but it means a lot more than sum up. Um, it, there isn't a word in English that does it justice. It's like fulfillment and sum up and resolution and bringing together. We were built for, meant for, fulfilled in Jesus. And only when he comes as king will all the falling apart, decaying, come together in perfection for good. Perfect love and perfect harmony. The stuff that we're made for. But choosing to believe that God is part of the solution, not the problem, makes all the difference. That he loves you and cares for you and is with you in the midst of it all. And that he fundamentally has not left you alone which, as a matter of personal testimony, is something that it's very much easier to believe once you've experienced it. Because do you know what happened in my bedroom that night when I was screaming into my pillow slash dramatically out of a window? God, be real. Please be real. If you're real, I'll do anything. Please be real. Absolutely nothing. Nothing that I can concretely say I heard or felt Do I believe, as I cried myself to sleep that night, that God was with me, weeping with me, feeling all the mess and the pain and the confusion and the sadness with me? Yes, with my whole heart. And that he had the full knowledge that this was all going to come together, one way or another, as it turned out quite a few years later, in terms of me experiencing this love and this joy and this beauty and this acceptance. Yeah. Could he have revealed himself to me in the way that I did then experience, in physical ways, in emotional ways, in tangible ways? He absolutely could have done, but he didn't. I do think there was something of that night that was a turning point for me in probably ways that I had no idea were happening. But I learned that I mattered. And I believe that you matter and that there is a plan. Nothing is fixed, but most importantly, his desire and will is to redeem everything. And he gives us his spirit to help him. So finally, the spirit is given as a sign and foretaste of the whole renewed cosmos, which awaits us as our inheritance. And you're included. You he gives you his spirit so that you can know all of this while you're waiting to be with him perfectly for eternity. His spirit is in you and with you always, but we always leave space at the end of the service for him to reveal himself in power when we gather together. 
We do this every week. 